The words of consideration for our sermon this morning come from the Gospel of John. This being our Gospel, I invite you to please stand out of respect. From, John, or from Mark chapter 1. After John was put in prison, Jesus went into Galilee, proclaiming the good news of God. The time has come, he said. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. As Jesus walked beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and his brother Andrew casting a net into the lake, for they were fishermen. Come, follow me, Jesus said, and I will send you out to fish for people. At once they left their nets and followed him. When he had gone a little farther, he saw James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John in a boat, preparing their nets. Without delay, he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired men and followed him. This is the gospel of our Lord. You may be seated. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. In ancient Greek mythology, there is the story about a man named Sisyphus. And in this story, Sisyphus is the first king of the city of Corinth. He was known as a very crafty and deceitful man in this life. And so after he died and he goes into the underworld, there was a very specific punishment devised for him. He was consigned to push a boulder up a mountain for all of eternity. And as soon as he got close to the top, that boulder would roll all the way back down to the bottom. And he had to start all over again. And so Sisyphus was condemned to an eternity of eternally pushing this boulder up the mountain, only to have it be unsuccessful each and every time he tried. Talk about a way to spend eternity. Talk about a way to have an insurmountable obstacle. Now, even though the myth of Sisyphus is just that, a myth that perhaps gives the moral lesson, don't be tricky or deceitful, there is a word that comes from that, a term. And it's called Sisyphean, if I put the accent on the right spot. And Sisyphean is an action that describes a laborious yet fruitless activity. Just like Sisyphus pushing that boulder up the mountain. And as I look out at the world today, as I read some of the news, as I watch some of the news, as I, as I hear a number of people talk, I, I can't help but wonder if they start to show a little bit of Sisyphean attitude. That idea of that, that I'm just laboring so hard and yet I don't know where I'm going. It's just a fruitless activity. It's pretty obvious when people are like, oh, it's 2021, it's going to be automatically better than 2020 just because the, the year happened to change. And, and then they're automatically surprised when, when things don't get perfectly better from 2020. And so in addition to all of the personal obstacles that they have to face, they have to face the, the year 2021 and everything that comes along with that. There are many obstacles that we face in life. Personal obstacles, 
Obstacles at work, obstacles at school. We face obstacles at home, whether it be our spouse or with our family. We face obstacles to our faith. As that sinful nature that is always within us is prodding us to do the things that we know God doesn't want us to do, but secretly, deep down, we are more than happy to do it. And when, when packaged all together, all of these obstacles look very similar to that boulder that Sisyphus had to push up that mountain, an insurmountable obstacle. Now, some of these obstacles we know are our own fault. Others of them we know aren't. Yet we still have to face these obstacles. We still have to overcome them. Or do we? Because in the midst of all of our obstacles, in the midst of all of the challenges, we have our God. Our God who calls us to rise up above these obstacles. A God who has already overcome these obstacles for us. And we can see that in the gospel that we just read from Mark. We have a God who is strong enough to overcome Far different than the Greek myth of Sisyphus is the Bible. If any of you have actually ever read some mythology, whether it be Greek mythology, Roman mythology, or some other ancient culture, you notice there's a certain flavor that it has to it. And it's not the same as when you open up the Bible and start reading the Bible. The Bible does not read like mythology. It does not read like just these are moral lessons that we need to take in our life today the Bible reads as history, because the Bible is history. And in this section of Mark, we see how Jesus calls some of his very first disciples. And Mark, being a very succinct guy, we might look at it and say, okay, he called his disciples, they followed him, that's good, let's go on to the next story. And yet being 2,000 years removed from this event, we might be able to overlook and say, were there really any obstacles to overcome? And yes, there were. When we dive a little bit deeper, we see that there were obstacles really on both sides. So let's take a look at, first of all, the obstacles that would have confronted the disciples, or the soon-to-be disciples, Peter and Andrew, James and John. We heard the gospel begin after John was put in prison. Now, it's not the gospel writer John that it's being talked about. It's rather John the Baptist, the forerunner of the Messiah, the one who proclaimed, this is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He had just been put into prison because he had spoken the truth against the king. And it was then that Jesus started his ministry, really started preaching a very similar message to what John had preached. Preached the good news of God. What is that good news? The good news that God promised to send a Savior. The good news that God sent that Savior in the form of Jesus. And Jesus said, repent for the kingdom of God is near. Turn away from your sins and turn to me. And then during the course of his preaching, he's up in the northern region of Galilee, by the Sea of Galilee. He's walking alongside the shore and he finds two sets of brothers, Peter and Andrew and then James and John. 
And it's with these two sets of brothers that he essentially says the same thing. Come and follow me. Now what we've learned in our Wednesday Bible class on the life of Jesus is that this was not the first time that Peter and Andrew, James and John had met Jesus. They had met him shortly after his baptism. So they knew who he was. They had perhaps heard a sermon that he had preached, but they had not been called to follow him full time. As can be seen by they were still fishing. But now Jesus says something different. I want you to come and follow me. I want you to give up your livelihood. I want you to give up your careers. And I want you to, to follow me. I want you to learn from me. I want you to be my disciple, my student. And then he gave them a metaphor that they easily would have understood. Up until this time, you have just been fishing for fish. But right now, I will make you fish for people. And with both sets of brothers, we hear a very similar response. At once, they left their nets and followed him. So in this concise way, Mark describes how Jesus gained his first four disciples. But how easy was it for those disciples to immediately drop their nets and follow Jesus? It really goes back to that first verse that we heard. After John was put into prison. Why is that significant? We know that at least two of those disciples, Andrew and John, had been disciples of John the Baptist. They had followed John the Baptist. John the Baptist had likely maybe been the first one to take them under his wing and explain to them what exactly the kingdom of God meant. And what happens when you get a gain an affinity for a certain teacher? You might want to defend him. You might wonder why that teacher ended up in jail while this new guy doesn't. And maybe if that wasn't obstacle enough, maybe there was also the thought behind it, thinking that, okay, John the Baptist got put in prison for what he's preached, and what happens if Jesus gets put in prison for what he preaches, and then the Romans discover that we were both followers of John the Baptist and of Jesus, what are they going to do to us? How much easier it would have been to say, you know what? I really like you, Jesus. I really do. I think you got some good ideas here, but... We're just going to stay being fishermen. We'll go, to the, we'll go to the synagogue on the Sabbath. We'll learn, but at least from afar. To continue to be fishermen. And it's an obstacle that I feel, I feel is still present today. Now, while not all of us have been called by Jesus to be full-time workers in his church... We all have been called to be full-time followers of him. We all have been called to be disciples of him. And the obstacle we face is how much do we feel like following? Or how much should we feel like following? So these obstacles can take any number of shapes. They're bountiful as the excuses that we can make to limit the amount of time that we follow our Savior. And, and really, when you think of it, just that frame of mind, how much is good enough, is really the wrong frame of mind to even be asking the question. 
And yet we do it all the time. You know what, God? It's not a really good time in my life right now to follow you. At least to follow you more. I really... You know I want to follow you even more, God, but, but right now I just need to get my life sorted out, and then after that, then I will follow you. God, do you know how, how much of a financial limb I would be going out onto if I actually gave you 10% of what I, gave, of what I make? I'd be really going out on a financial limb. I don't know if I'd be able to survive with that. God, do you know what would happen to my reputation? If people that, that I worked with, if people that I hung out with actually knew what I believed about you here, if I actually shared with you that, or shared with them that the Bible is the only way to heaven, Jesus is the only way to heaven, and that, that apart from Jesus, no one else gets to heaven? I don't know if you know this, God, but a lot of your word is not very politically correct. I'm good staying on the sidelines. I'm good following you just enough. I'll, I'll come to church. I'll give what's comfortable for me. I'll try and be a good person. But that's about as good as I'll follow you. And all of this really stems from an attitude that prefers to follow self rather than God. For we are the hero of our own story. If no one will take care of, or if we don't take care of ourselves, who will? I'm in the one who's in control of my own destiny. And yet the more we give excuses for how little time we want to spend with God and his word, the bigger that boulder that we push up that mountain becomes. Think how differently this story from the Gospel of Mark would have turned out had the disciples made some of those same excuses. Jesus says, Peter, Andrew, come follow me. I'll make you fishers of men. Nah. Nah. I'm good. We're, we're good just being fishers of fish. Doesn't quite have the same ring to it. And so this is the obstacle that needed to be overcome. And yet it was not an obstacle that needed to be overcome by Peter and Andrew, James and John. It was an obstacle that was overcome by the call of Jesus. It was the call of Jesus who overcame their excuses. Because from a surface level, following Jesus makes no sense. And yet, in reality, it makes the most sense at all in the world. The call to be a follower of Jesus Christ was and still is a call to live a truly full life. A life free from the guilt of sin. A future of eternal glory. God's call is one that overcomes obstacles. And it was strong enough to overcome the excuses of his disciples, both then and now. And I think it really is, is wrapped up in the metaphor that Jesus used for what his disciples would be doing. That metaphor of, I will make you fishers of people. Or, in the old NIV, fishers of men. For commercial fishermen like Peter and Andrew, kind of like I was explaining in the children's message, uh, they didn't mess around with little fishing poles, go down by the side of the creek, no. They, they had those big old nets that they threw into the lake, it was weighted down, and then they would catch as many fish as they could, they would pull the nets up, and then they would take those fish and they would sell them in the market. 
Do those fish want to be caught? No. And yet they were. The same is true when Jesus caught those first disciples. The same is true whenever Jesus catches a soul for his kingdom. By nature, we are just like those fish. We don't want to be caught. We don't want to follow Jesus. And yet, Jesus' call overcomes our desires. He caught us just as he caught Peter and Andrew, just as he is calling us to catch other people for him. But then that also shows us how different things are as well. How different Jesus operates than you would expect him to. The other obstacle that needed to be overcome in the calling of his disciples, this time from Jesus' perspective. The other job in the job of a commercial fisherman was not only catching the fish, but once those fish were caught, they had to separate those fish out. They would take the small and the undesirable fish, maybe the ones that, that, that had some defects or deformities, they'd either throw them out or throw them back into the sea. While the big, the meaty fish, those are the ones that they would take and they would sell in the marketplace. And yet Jesus doesn't operate this way. Jesus didn't take the best and the brightest. He didn't take the meaty and the large fish, as can be seen in his choice of these first disciples. Think of who you would pick if you were an up-and-coming rabbi in the land of Judah at this time. You might go to the synagogue and you might pick the people that are answering the most questions. You might pick someone that has a little bit of business acumen so that he can help finance your ministry. You might pick someone that has a little bit of charisma that can gather a crowd around them and all you need to do is insert your message into them and then that message is going to spread far and wide. Who did Jesus pick? We don't see him going to pick his disciples in the synagogue. We don't see him going to the marketplace and selecting the best, best vendor to be his disciple. He goes to the Sea of Galilee. He goes and picks fishermen. People who certainly knew how to fish, but maybe were not the brightest students. They didn't have the most charisma. They were a little rough around the edges. They had their weaknesses. They had their flaws. They had their obstacles that Jesus needed to overcome. And he did. It's really summarized by the Apostle Paul. The same guy that we heard about in our second lesson, the one who was called to go on those missionary journeys by God. In one of the letters that he wrote to those congregations, he said, when I am weak, he is strong. The idea in my weaknesses, when I have failed, when I can't do something, that is where God's strength is shown. Our own weaknesses highlight God's strength to overcome those weaknesses. And it wasn't just in the message that Jesus came to preach. It was in Jesus' life that he preached that was strong enough to overcome our own weaknesses. His life was strong enough to be perfect. His life was strong enough to endure the wrath of God on the cross. His life was strong enough to overcome death itself and come back alive again. And this is the strength that he needed to be able to take away all of our sins. 
Now, there can be times in our life where we become so overwhelmed with the problems, the challenges, the obstacles in our life that we lose sight of the Savior. That sometimes we feel very much like Sisyphus pushing that, that boulder up a mountain only to have it fall down again and start all over again. And by ourselves, in reality, we really are just like that. That is the eternity that each and every one of us deserves, that pushing that boulder of our sins up the hill for all eternity. And yet that's where Greek mythology and Christianity differ. In fact, that's where Christianity differs from any other world religion. In Greek mythology, it was the gods who, who sentenced Sisyphus to that punishment. In Christianity, it's the exact opposite. It is our God who takes that punishment upon himself, who takes that boulder out of our life and then says, come and follow me. May God grant us the wisdom to not continue pushing that pointless boulder up that hill and instead follow him in a life of freedom, both now and and in eternity. Amen. Now may he who began a good work in you carry it out to completion in the day of Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen.